Part Third, Chapter Four of Nostromo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Carpenter. Nostromo by Joseph Conrad. Part Third, The Lighthouse, Chapter Four. Charles Gould turned towards the town. Before him, the jagged peaks of the Sierra came out all black in the clear dawn. Here and there a muffled lepero whisked round the corner of a grass-grown street before the ringing hoofs of his horse. Dogs barked behind the walls of the gardens, and with the colorless light the chill of the snows seemed to fall from the mountains upon the disjointed pavements and the shuttered houses with broken cornices and the plaster peeling in patches between the flat pilasters of the fronts. The daybreak struggled with the gloom under the arcades on the plaza with no signs of the country people disposing their goods for the day's market, Piles of fruit, bundles of vegetables, ornamented with flowers, on low benches under enormous mat umbrellas, with no cheery early morning bustle of villagers, women, children, and loaded donkeys. Only a few scattered knots of revolutionists stood in the vast space, all looking one way from under their slouched hats for some sign of news from Rincon. The largest of those groups turned about like one man as Charles Gould passed and shouted, Viva la libertad! after him in a menacing tone. Charles Gould rode on, and turned into the archway of his house. In the patio, littered with straw, a practicante, one of Dr. Monaghan's native assistants, sat on the ground with his back against the rim of the fountain, fingering a guitar discreetly, while two girls of the lower class standing up before him shuffled their feet a little and waved their arms, humming a popular dance tune. Most of the wounded during the two days of rioting had been taken away already by their friends and relations but several figures could be seen sitting up balancing their bandaged heads in time to the music. Charles Gould dismounted. A sleepy mozo coming out of the bakery door took hold of the horse's bridle. The practicante endeavored to conceal his guitar hastily. The girls, unabashed, stepped back smiling, and Charles Gould, on his way to the staircase, glanced into a dark corner of the patio at another group, a mortally wounded cargador, with a woman kneeling by his side. She mumbled prayers rapidly trying at the same time to force a piece of orange between the stiffening lips of the dying man. The cruel futility of things stood unveiled in the levity and sufferings of that incorrigible people. The cruel futility of lives and of deaths thrown away in the vain endeavor to attain an enduring solution of the problem. Unlike Decoud, Charles Gould could not play lightly a part in a tragic farce. It was tragic enough for him in all conscience, but he could see no farcical element. He suffered too much under a conviction of irremediable folly. He was too severely practical and too idealistic to look upon its terrible humors with amusement, as Martin Decoud, the imaginative materialist, was able to do in the dry light of his skepticism. To him, as to all of us, the compromises with his conscience appeared uglier than ever in the light of failure. His taciturnity, assumed with a purpose, had prevented him from tampering openly with his thoughts but the Gould concession had insidiously corrupted his judgment. He might have known, he said to himself, leaning over the balustrade of the corridor, that Rivierism could never come to anything. The mine had corrupted his judgment by making him sick of bribing and intriguing, merely to have his work left alone from day to day. Like his father, he did not like to be robbed. It exasperated him. He had persuaded himself that, apart from higher considerations, the backing up of Don José's hopes of reform were was good business. He had gone forth into the senseless fray, as his poor uncle, whose sword hung on the wall of his study, had gone forth, 
in the defense of the commonest decencies of organized society. Only his weapon was the wealth of the mine, more far-reaching and subtle than an honest blade of steel fitted into a simple brass guard. More dangerous to the wielder, too, this weapon of wealth, double-edged, with the cupidity and misery of mankind, steeped in all the vices of self-indulgence, as a concoction of poisonous roots, tainting the very cause for which it is drawn, always ready to turn awkwardly in the hand. There was nothing for it now but to go on using it. But he promised himself to see it shattered into small bits before he let it be wrenched from his grasp. After all, with his English parentage and English upbringing, he perceived that he was an adventurer in Cosaguana, the descendant of adventurers enlisted in a foreign legion, of men who had sought fortune in a revolutionary war, who had planned revolutions, who had believed in revolutions. For all the uprightness of his character, he had something of an adventurer's easy morality which takes count of personal risk in the ethical appraising of his action. He was prepared, if need be, to blow up the whole San Tomé mountain sky-high out of the territory of the Republic. This resolution expressed the tenacity of his character, the remorse of that subtle conjugal infidelity through which his wife was no longer the sole mistress of his thoughts. Something of his father's imaginative weakness, and something, too, of the spirit of a buccaneer, throwing a lighted match into the magazine rather than surrender his ship. Down below, in the patio, the wounded cargador had breathed his last. The woman cried out once, and her cry, unexpected and shrill, made all the wounded sit up. The practicante scrambled to his feet, and, guitar in hand, gazed steadily in her direction with elevated eyebrows. The two girls, sitting now one on each side of their wounded relative, with their knees drawn up and long cigars between their lips, nodded at each other significantly. Charles Gould, looking down over the balustrade, saw three men dressed ceremoniously in black frock coats with white shirts and wearing European round hats, enter the patio from the street. One of them, head and shoulders taller than the two others, advanced with marked gravity, leading the way. This was Don Juste Lopez, accompanied by two of his friends, members of assembly, coming to call upon the administrador of the San Tomé mine at this early hour. They saw him, too, waved their hands to him urgently, walking up the stairs as if in procession. Don Juste, astonishingly changed by having shaved off altogether his damaged beard, had lost with it nine-tenths of his outward dignity. Even at that time of serious preoccupation, Charles Gould could not help noting the revealed ineptitude in the aspect of the man. His companions looked crestfallen and sleepy. One kept on passing the tip of his tongue over his parched lips. The other's eyes strayed dully over the tiled floor of the corredor, while Don Juste, standing a little in advance, harangued the señor administrador of the San Tomé mine. It was his firm opinion that forms had to be observed. A new governor is always visited by deputations from the cabildo, which is the municipal council, from the consulado, the commercial board, and it was proper that the provincial assembly should send a deputation too, if only to assert the existence of parliamentary institutions. Don Juste proposed that Don Carlos Gould, as the most prominent citizen of the province, should join the assembly's deputation. His position was exceptional, his personality known through the length and breadth of the whole republic. Official courtesies must not be neglected, if they are gone through with a bleeding heart. The acceptance of accomplished facts may save yet the precious vestiges of parliamentary institutions. Don Juste's eyes glowed dully. He believed in parliamentary institutions, and the convinced drone of his voice lost itself in the stillness of the house, like the deep buzzing of some ponderous insect. Charles Gould had turned round to listen patiently, leaning his elbow on the balustrade. 
He shook his head a little, refusing, almost touched by the anxious gaze of the president of the provincial assembly. It was not Charles Gould's policy to make the Santome mine a party to any formal proceedings. "'My advice, senores, is that you should wait for your fate in your houses. There is no necessity for you to give yourselves up formally into Montero's hands. Submission to the inevitable, as Don Juste calls it, is all very well. But when the inevitable is called Pedrito Montero, there is no need to exhibit pointedly the whole extent of your surrender. The fault of this country is the want of measure in political life.' flat acquiescence in illegality followed by sanguinary reaction that senores is not the way to a stable and prosperous future charles gould stopped before the sad bewilderment of the faces the wondering anxious glances of the eyes the feeling of pity for those men putting all their trust into words of some sort while murder and rapine stalked over the land had betrayed him into what seemed empty loquacity don juste murmured you are abandoning us don carlos and yet parliamentary institutions. He could not finish from grief. For a moment he put his hand over his eyes. Charles Gould, in his fear of empty loquacity, made no answer to the charge. He returned in silence their ceremonious bows. His taciturnity was his refuge. He understood that what they sought was to get the influence of the Santome mine on their side. They wanted to go on a conciliating errand to the victor under the wing of the Gould concession, other public bodies, the Cabildo, the Consulado, would be coming too, presently, seeking the support of the most stable, the most effective force they had ever known to exist in their province. The doctor, arriving with his sharp, jerky walk, found that the master had retired into his own room with orders not to be disturbed on any account. But Dr. Monaghan was not anxious to see Charles Gould at once. He spent some time in a rapid examination of his wounded. He gazed down upon each in turn, rubbing his chin between his thumb and forefinger, his steady stare met without expression their silently inquisitive look. All these cases were doing well, but when he came to the dead cargador, he stopped a little longer, surveying not the man who had ceased to suffer, but the woman kneeling in silent contemplation of the rigid face, with its pinched nostrils and a white gleam in the imperfectly closed eyes. She lifted her head slowly, and said in a dull voice, It is not long since he had become a cargador, only a few weeks. His worship the Capataz had accepted him after many entreaties. "'I am not responsible for the great Capataz,' muttered the doctor, moving off, directing his course upstairs towards the door of Charles Gould's room. The doctor, at the last moment, hesitated, then, turning away from the handle with a shrug of his uneven shoulders, slunk off hastily along the corredor in search of Mrs. Gould's camerista. Leonardo told him that the Signora had not risen yet. The Signora had given into her charge— the girls belonging to that Italian posadero. She, Leonarda, had put them to bed in her own room. The fair girl had cried herself to sleep, but the dark one, the bigger, had not closed her eyes yet. She sat up in bed, clutching the sheets right up to her chin and staring before her like a little witch. Leonarda did not approve of the Viola children being admitted to the house. She made this feeling clear by the indifferent tone in which she inquired whether their mother was dead yet. As to the senora, she must be asleep. Ever since she had gone into her room after seeing the departure of Doña Antonia with her dying father, there had been no sound behind her door. The doctor, rousing himself out of profound reflection, told her abruptly to call her mistress at once. He hobbled off to wait for Mrs. Gould in the sala. He was very tired, but too excited to sit down. In this great drawing-room, now empty, in which his withered soul had been refreshed after many arid years— and his outcast spirit had accepted silently the toleration of many side-glances. He wandered haphazard amongst the chairs and tables, till Mrs. Gould, enveloped in a morning wrapper, 
came in rapidly. "'You know that I never approved of the silver being sent away,' the doctor began at once, as a preliminary to the narrative of his night's adventures, in association with Captain Mitchell, the engineer-in-chief, and old Viola at Sotillo's headquarters. To the doctor, with his special conception of this political crisis, the removal of the silver had seemed an irrational and ill-omened measure. It was as if a general were sending the best part of his troops away on the eve of battle upon some recondite pretext. The whole lot of ingots might have been concealed somewhere, where they could have been got at for the purpose of staving off the dangers which were menacing the security of the Gould concession. The administrador had acted as if the immense and powerful prosperity of the mine had been founded on the methods of probity, on the sense of usefulness, and it was nothing of the kind. The method followed had been the only one possible. The Gould concession had ransomed its way through all those years. It was a nauseous process. He quite understood that Charles Gould had got sick of it, and had left the old path to back up that hopeless attempt at reform. The doctor did not believe in the reform of Costaguana, and now the mine was back again in its old path, with the disadvantage that henceforth it had to deal not only with the greed provoked by its wealth, but with the resentment awakened by the attempt to free itself from its bondage to moral corruption. That was the penalty of failure. What made him uneasy was that Charles Gould seemed to him to have weakened at the decisive moment when a frank return to the old methods was the only chance. Listening to Decoud's wild scheme had been a weakness. The doctor flung up his arms, exclaiming, Decoud! Decoud! He hobbled about the room with slight angry laughs. Many years ago both his ankles had been seriously damaged in the course of a certain investigation conducted in the castle of Santa Marta by a commission composed of military men. Their nomination had been signified to them unexpectedly at the dead of night, with a scowling brow, flashing eyes, and in a tempestuous voice by Guzman Bento. The old tyrant, maddened by one of his sudden accesses of suspicion, mingled spluttering appeals to their fidelity with imprecations and horrible menaces. The cells and casements of the castle on the hill had been already filled with prisoners. The commission was charged now with the task of discovering the iniquitous conspiracy against the citizen savior of his country. Their dread of the raving tyrant translated itself into a hasty ferocity of procedure. The citizen savior was not accustomed to wait. A conspiracy had to be discovered. The courtyards of the castle resounded with the clanking of leg-irons, sounds of blows, yells of pain, and the commission of high officers labored feverishly, concealing their distress and apprehensions from each other, and especially from their secretary, Father Beron, an army chaplain, at that time very much in the confidence of the citizen savior. That priest was a big round-shouldered man with an unclean-looking overgrown tonsure on the top of his flat head, of a dingy yellow complexion, softly fat, with greasy stains all down the front of his lieutenant's uniform, and a small cross embroidered in white cotton on his left breast. He had a heavy nose and a pendant lip. Dr. Monaghan remembered him still. He remembered him against all the force of his will, striving its utmost to forget. Father Beron had been adjoined to the commission by Guzman Bento, expressly for the purpose that his enlightened zeal should assist them in their labors. Dr. Monaghan could by no manner of means forget the zeal of Father Beron, or his face, or the pitiless, monotonous voice, in which he pronounced the words, Will you confess, now? This memory did not make him shudder, but it had made of him what he was in the eyes of respectable people, a man careless of common decencies, something between a clever vagabond and a disreputable doctor but not all respectable people would have had the necessary delicacy of sentiment to understand with what trouble of mind and accuracy of vision 
Dr. Monaghan, medical officer of the Santome mine, remembered Father Perón, army chaplain, and once a secretary of a military commission. After all these years, Dr. Monaghan, in his rooms, at the end of the hospital building in the Santome Gorge, remembered Father Perón as distinctly as ever. He remembered that priest at night, sometimes, in his sleep. On such nights the doctor waited for daylight with a candle lighted, and walking the whole length of his rooms to and fro, staring down at his bare feet, his arms hugging his sides tightly. He would dream of Father Baron, sitting at the end of a long black table behind which, in a row, appeared the heads, shoulders, and epaulettes of the military members, nibbling the feather of a quill pen, and listening with a weary and impatient scorn to the protestations of some prisoner, calling heaven to witness of his innocence, till he burst out, "'What's the use of wasting time over that miserable nonsense? "'Let me take him outside for a while.' "'And Father Baron would go outside after the clanking prisoner, "'led away between two soldiers. "'Such interludes happened on many days, many times, with many prisoners. "'When the prisoner returned, he was ready to make a full confession. "'Father Baron would declare, leaning forward with that dull, surfeited look, "'which can be seen in the eyes of gluttonous persons after a heavy meal.' The priest's inquisitorial instinct suffered but little from the want of classical apparatus of the Inquisition. At no time of the world's history have men been at a loss how to inflict mental and bodily anguish upon their fellow creatures. This aptitude came to them in the growing complexity of their passions, and the early refinement of their ingenuity. But it may safely be said that primeval man did not go to the trouble of inventing tortures. He was indolent and pure of heart, he brained his neighbor ferociously with a stone axe from necessity and without malice. The stupidest mind may invent a rankling phrase or brand the innocent with a cruel aspersion. A piece of string and a ramrod, a few muskets in combination with a length of hide rope, or even a simple mallet of heavy hard wood applied with a swing to human fingers or to the joints of a human body, is enough for the infliction of the most exquisite torture. The doctor had been a very stubborn prisoner, and as a natural consequence of that bad disposition, so Father Baron called it. His subjugation had been very crushing and very complete. That is why the limp in his walk, the twist of his shoulders, the scars on his cheeks, were so pronounced. His confessions, when they came at last, were very complete, too. Sometimes on the nights when he walked the floor he wondered, grinding his teeth with shame and rage, at the fertility of his imagination when stimulated by a sort of pain which makes truth, honor, self-respect and life itself, matters of little moment. And he could not forget Father Baron with his monotonous phrase, Will you confess? Now, reaching him in an awful iteration and lucidity of meaning through the delirious incoherence of unbearable pain. He could not forget. But that was not the worst. Had he met Father Baron in the street after all these years, Dr. Monaghan was sure he would have quailed before him. This contingency was not to be feared now. Father Baron was dead. But the sickening certitude prevented Dr. Monaghan from looking anybody in the face. Dr. Monaghan had become, in a manner, the slave of a ghost. It was obviously impossible to take his knowledge of Father Baron home to Europe. When making his extorted confessions to the military board, Dr. Monaghan was not seeking to avoid death. He longed for it. Sitting half-naked for hours on the wet earth of his prison, and so motionless that the spiders, his companions, attached their webs to his matted hair. He consoled the misery of his soul with acute reasonings that he had confessed to crimes enough for a sentence of death, that they had gone too far with him to let him live to tell the tale. 
but as if by a refinement of cruelty Dr. Monaghan was left for months to decay slowly in the darkness of his grave-like prison. It was no doubt hoped that it would finish him off, without the trouble of an execution. But Dr. Monaghan had an iron constitution. It was Guzman Bento who died, not by the knife-thrust of a conspirator, but from a stroke of apoplexy. And Dr. Monaghan was liberated hastily. His fetters were struck off by the light of a candle which, after months of gloom, hurt his eyes so much that he had to cover his face with his hands. He was raised up. His heart was beating violently with the fear of this liberty. When he tried to walk, the extraordinary lightness of his feet made him giddy, and he fell down. Two sticks were thrust into his hands, and he was pushed out of the passage. It was dusk. Candles glimmered already in the windows of the officers' quarters round the courtyard, but the twilight sky dazed him by its enormous and overwhelming brilliance. A thin poncho hung over his naked, bony shoulders, the rags of his trousers came down no lower than his knees, an eighteen months' growth of hair fell in dirty grey locks on each side of his sharp cheekbones. As he dragged himself past the guard-room door, one of the soldiers, lolling outside, moved by some obscure impulse, leaped forward with a strange laugh, and rammed a broken old straw hat on his head, and Dr. Monaghan, after having tottered, continued on his way. He advanced one stick, then one maimed foot, then the other stick. The other foot followed only a very short distance along the ground, toilfully, as though it were almost too heavy to be moved at all. And yet his legs under the hanging angles of the poncho appeared no thicker than the two sticks in his hands. A ceaseless trembling agitated his bent body, all his wasted limbs, his bony head, the conical ragged crown of the sombrero, whose ample flat rim rested on his shoulders. In such conditions of manner and attire did Dr. Monaghan go forth to take possession of his liberty, and these conditions seemed to bind him indissolubly to the land of Costaguana, like an awful procedure of naturalization, involving him deep in the national life, far deeper than any amount of success and honor could have done. They did away with his Europeanism, for Dr. Monaghan had made himself an ideal conception of his disgrace. It was a conception eminently fit and proper for an officer and a gentleman. Dr. Monaghan, before he went out to Costaguana, had been a surgeon in one of Her Majesty's regiments of foot. It was a conception which took no account of physiological facts or reasonable arguments. But it was not stupid for all that. It was simple. A rule of conduct resting mainly on severe rejections is necessarily simple. Dr. Monaghan's view of what it behooved him to do was severe. It was an ideal view, in so much that it was the imaginative exaggeration of a correct feeling. It was also, in its force, influence, and persistency, the view of an eminently loyal nature. There was a great fund of loyalty in Dr. Monaghan's nature. He had settled it all on Mrs. Gould's head. He believed her worthy of every devotion. At the bottom of his heart he felt an angry uneasiness before the prosperity of the Santome mine, because its growth was robbing her of all peace of mind. Costaguana was no place for a woman of that kind. What could Charles Gould have been thinking of when he brought her out there? It was outrageous. And the doctor had watched the course of events with a grim and distant reserve, which he imagined his lamentable history imposed upon him. Loyalty to Mrs. Gould could not, however, leave out of account the safety of her husband. The doctor had contrived to be in town at the critical time, because he mistrusted Charles Gould. He considered him hopelessly infected with the madness of revolutions. That is why he hobbled in distress in the drawing-room of the Casa Gould on that morning, exclaiming, Decoud, decoud, in a tone of mournful irritation. Mrs. Gould, her color heightened, and with glistening eyes, looked straight before her at the sudden enormity of that disaster. The fingertips on one hand, 
rested lightly on a low little table by her side, and the arm trembled right up to the shoulder. The sun, which looks late upon Sulaco, issuing in all the fullness of its power high up on the sky from behind the dazzling snow-edge of Higarota, had precipitated the delicate, smooth, pearly grayness of light, in which the town lies steeped during the early hours, into sharp-cut masses of black shade and spaces of hot, blinding glare. Three long rectangles of sunshine fell through the windows of the sala, while just across the street the front of the Avellanos's house appeared very sombre in its own shadow, seen through the flood of light. A voice said at the door, What of Decoud? It was Charles Gould. They had not heard him coming along the corridor. His glance just glided over his wife and struck full at the doctor. You have brought some news, doctor. Dr. Monaghan blurted it all out at once, in the rough. For some time after he had done, the administrador of the Santo Tome mine remained looking at him without a word. Mrs. Gould sank into a low chair with her hands lying on her lap. A silence reigned between those three motionless persons. Then Charles Gould spoke. You must want some breakfast. He stood aside to let his wife pass first. She caught up her husband's hand and pressed it as she went out, raising her handkerchief to her eyes. The sight of her husband had brought Antonia's position to her mind, and she could not contain her tears at the thought of the poor girl. When she rejoined the two men in the dining-room after having bathed her face, Charles Gould was saying to the doctor across the table, No, there does not seem to be any room for doubt, and the doctor assented. No, I don't see myself how we could question that wretched Hirsch's tale. It's only too true, I fear. She sat down desolately at the head of the table and looked from one to the other. The two men, without absolutely turning their heads away, tried to avoid her glance. The doctor even made a show of being hungry. He seized his knife and fork and began to eat with emphasis, as if on the stage. Charles Gould made no pretense of the sort. With his elbows raised squarely, he twisted both ends of his flaming mustaches. They were so long that his hands were quite away from his face. "'I am not surprised,' he muttered, abandoning his mustaches and throwing one arm over the back of the chair. His face was calm with that immobility of expression which betrays the intensity of a mental struggle. He felt that this accident had brought to a point all the consequences involved in his line of conduct, with its conscious and subconscious intentions. There must be an end now of this silent reserve, of that air of impenetrability behind which he had been safeguarding his dignity. It was the least ignoble form of dissembling forced upon him by that parody of civilized institutions which offended his intelligence, his uprightness, and his sense of right. He was like his father. He had no ironic eye. He was not amused at the absurdities that prevail in this world. They hurt him in his innate gravity. He felt that the miserable death of that poor Decoud took from him his inaccessible position of a force in the background. It committed him openly unless he wished to throw up the game, and that was impossible. The material interests required from him the sacrifice of his aloofness, perhaps his own safety, too and he reflected that Decoud's separationist plan had not gone to the bottom with the lost silver. The only thing that was not changed was his position towards Mr. Holroyd. The head of silver and steel interests had entered into Costaguana affairs with a sort of passion. Costaguana had become necessary to his existence. In the San Tomé mine he had found the imaginative satisfaction which other minds would get from drama, from art, or from a risky and fascinating sport. It was a special form of the great man's extravagance, sanctioned by a moral intention, big enough to flatter his vanity. Even in this aberration of his genius he served the progress of the world. Charles Gould felt sure of being understood with precision, and judged with the indulgence of their common passion. Nothing now could surprise or startle this great man, 
and Charles Gould imagined himself writing a letter to San Francisco in some such words. The men at the head of the movement are dead or have fled. The civil organization of the province is at an end for the present. The Blanco party in Sulaco has collapsed, inexcusably, but in the characteristic manner of this country. But Barrios, untouched in Caeta, remains still available. I am forced to take up openly the plan of a provincial revolution as the only way of placing the enormous material interests involved in the prosperity and peace of Sulaco in a position of permanent safety. That was clear. He saw these words as if written in letters of fire upon the wall at which he was gazing abstractedly. Mrs. Gould watched his abstraction with dread. It was a domestic and frightful phenomenon that darkened and chilled the house for her like a thundercloud passing over the sun. Charles Gould's fits of abstraction depicted the energetic concentration of a will haunted by a fixed idea. A man haunted by a fixed idea is insane. He is dangerous even if that idea is an idea of justice. For may he not bring the heaven down pitilessly upon a loved head? The eyes of Mrs. Gould, watching her husband's profile, filled with tears again, and again she seemed to see the despair of the unfortunate Antonia. "'What would I have done if Charlie had been drowned while we were engaged?' she exclaimed mentally with horror. Her heart turned to ice, while her cheeks flamed up as if scorched by the blaze of a funeral pyre consuming all her earthly affections. The tears burst out of her eyes. "'Antonia will kill herself!' she cried out. This cry fell into the silence of the room with strangely little effect. Only the doctor, crumbling up a piece of bread, with his head inclined on one side, raised his face, and the few long hairs sticking out of his shaggy eyebrows stirred in a slight frown. Dr. Monaghan thought quite sincerely that Decoud was a singularly unworthy object for any woman's affection. Then he lowered his head again with a curl of his lip and his heart full of tender admiration for Mrs. Gould. "'She thinks of that girl,' he said to himself. "'She thinks of the viola children. She thinks of me, of the wounded, of the miners. She always thinks of everybody who is poor and miserable. But what will she do if Charles gets the worst of it in this infernal scrimmage those confounded Avellanos have drawn him into?' No one seems to be thinking of her. Charles Gould, staring at the wall, pursued his reflections subtly. I shall write to Holroyd that the San Tome mine is big enough to take in hand the making of a new state. It'll please him. It'll reconcile him to the risk. But was Barrios really available? Perhaps. But he was inaccessible. To send off a boat to Kaita was no longer possible, since Sotillo was master of the harbor and had a steamer at his disposal. And now, with all the Democrats in the province up, and every Campo township in a state of disturbance, where could he find a man who would make his way successfully overland to Kaita with a message? A ten days' ride, at least, a man of courage and resolution who would avoid arrest or murder, and if arrested would faithfully eat the paper. The Capataz de Cargadores would have been just such a man, but the Capataz de Cargadores was no more. And Charles Gould, withdrawing his eyes from the wall, said gently, That Hirsch! What an extraordinary thing! Saved himself by clinging to the anchor, did he? I had no idea that he was still in Sulaco. I thought he had gone back overland to Esmeralda more than a week ago. He came here once to talk to me about his hide business and some other things. I made it clear to him that nothing could be done. He was afraid to start back on account of Hernandez being about, remarked the doctor. And but for him we might not have known anything of what has happened, marveled Charles Gould. Mrs. Gould cried out, Antonia must not know. She must not be told. Not now. Nobody's likely to carry the news, remarked the doctor. It's of no one's interest. 
Moreover, the people here are afraid of Hernandez as if he were the devil. He turned to Charles Gould. It's even awkward, because if you wanted to communicate with the refugees, you could find no messenger. When Hernandez was ranging hundreds of miles away from here, the Sulaco populace used to shudder at the tales of him roasting his prisoners alive. Yes, murmured Charles Gould. Captain Mitchell's Capataz was the only man in town who had seen Hernandez eye to eye. Father Corbelan employed him. He opened the communications first. It is a pity that... His voice was covered by the booming of the great bell of the cathedral. Three single strokes, one after another, burst out explosively, dying away in deep and mellow vibrations. And then all the bells in the tower of every church, convent, or chapel in town, even those that had remained shut up for years, pealed out together with a crash. In this furious flood of metallic uproar there was a power of suggesting images of strife and violence which blanched Mrs. Gould's cheek. Basilio, who had been waiting at table, shrinking within himself, clung to the sideboard with chattering teeth. It was impossible to hear yourself speak. "'Shut these windows!' Charles Gould yelled at him angrily. All of the other servants, terrified at what they took for this signal of a general massacre, had rushed upstairs, tumbling over each other, men and women, the obscure and generally invisible population of the ground floor on the four sides of the patio. The women, screaming, "'Misericordia!' ran right into the room, and, falling on their knees against the walls, began to cross themselves convulsively. The staring heads of men blocked the doorway in an instant. Mosos from the sable, gardeners, nondescript helpers living on the crumbs of the munificent house, and Charles Gould beheld all the extent of his domestic establishment even to the gatekeeper. This was a half-paralyzed old man, whose long white locks fell down to his shoulders, an heirloom taken up by Charles Gould's familial piety. He could remember Henry Gould, an Englishman and a costaguanero of the second generation, chief of the Sulaco province. He had been his personal mozo years and years ago in peace and war, and had been allowed to attend his master in prison, had on the fatal morning followed the firing squad, and peeping from behind one of the cypresses growing along the wall of the Franciscan convent, had seen with his eyes starting out of his head Don Enrique throw up his hands and fall with his face in the dust. Charles Gould noted particularly the big patriarchal head of that witness in the rear of the other servants, but he was surprised to see a shriveled old hag or two, of whose existence within the walls of his house he had not been aware. They must have been the mothers, or even the grandmothers, of some of his people. There were a few children, too, more or less naked, crying and clinging to the legs of their elders. He had never before noticed any sign of a child in his patio. Even Leonarda, the camerista, came in a fright, pushing through with her spoiled, pouting face of a favorite maid, leading the viola girls by the hand. The crockery rattled on table and sideboard, and the whole house seemed to sway in the deafening wave of sound. End of chapter 4